This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. Hey, for the wild community, it's Ayana and Molly, and we are excited to share this episode with Stephen Martin. But before we do, we wanted to mention a few updates. One, there is cussing in this episode. So for those of you out there who are listening who have an issue with that, just wanted to forewarn you with that. And we are on the road right now doing a listening tour, currently staying in Cordova, Alaska with conservation guru Dune Lankard. And if you haven't listened to the episode with him, we both highly recommend that you do. It's an incredible episode, and being with him has just brought that episode to life for us. So it's really special, and we definitely want to share that conversation with more people. Um, Also want to let you all know that encores are over, and this month of September, we are wrapping up our summer programming and have something pretty cool to share with you starting next month. We're going to be having theme months, so each month we'll have four episodes revolving around a particular theme, and we'll let you know what those are starting next month. So stay tuned, sign up for our newsletter on our website, and keep listening. All right, now on to the show. Hey For the Wild World, it's Molly here, media director of For the Wild. I want to take a moment to get real with you. This podcast takes a lot of heart, a lot of work, and we do it because we love it and we believe in our generation. To keep this podcast going in a good way, we need your support, which is why we launched Drip. Drip is an ongoing crowdfunding campaign that allows you, our beloved listener, to subscribe to our work on a sliding scale of anywhere between $2 and $100 per month. And in exchange, you can receive access to bonus material and deeper ways to engage with the content and the team. So if each of you who are listening to this episode right now value it at just $1, we would reach our fundraising goals overnight. If you value this work, please band together with us and join us at d.rip backslash for dash the dash wild to make your monthly pledge. And now on to the show. It's quite beautiful if we do something small, but it has integrity, how it it really does ripple out into everything. The silence is broken by somebody crying. Trying to be heard, never a word Always the attitude, sort out your own Always alone, 
Wishing for something the world is denying Out in the wilderness somebody's crying Somebody wishing for something to happen Wishing to tell, wishing to help Someone was listening, someone who cared Never despaired Someone to lean on and someone to trust Who needs your assistance and finds your disgust Hello and welcome to For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayanna Young. Today we are speaking with Stephen Martin. Stephen has more than 30 years experience living co-creatively with the earth, practicing traditional living skills of growing food, building, and healing. Stephen created Livingstone and Green Bloom in 1986, Toronto's first green landscaping company. In 1996, he started the Algonquin Tea Company, North America's premier bioregional tea company. He has given talks and run workshops internationally for more than 20 years and taught plant identification and wilderness skills at Algonquin College for 11 years. In 2014, Megan and he started the Sacred Gardener Earth Wisdom School. Stephen released his first book, The Story of the Madawaska Forest Garden, in 2016, and his second book, Sacred Gardening, was released in June 2017. Well, hello, Stephen. Welcome to For the Wild. Hello. Thank you for, for having me on. And greetings to all the folks out there and blessings your way for, for giving us your time to listen. Your books so eloquently illustrate how it's possible to live in an intimate relationship with the land. This co-creative relationship in which human is not the leader, but must be slow because letting the land lead requires humility, restraint, and really the ability to listen, all things that modern civilization lost touch with long ago. And you've come to call the way that you make relations with the more than humans who nourish you co-creative integrated polyculture. So would you explain what this means and how your principles and practices compared to those of modern permaculture? I kind of um, am a little wary of stepping on feet, especially when permaculture was one of the things that kind of led me to doing and working with the land the way I do now. But of course, like a lot of our initial attempts at kind of an alternative form of something, it's deeply flawed. It has to do with us always being at the center and that it's always about us. And it's really our plans that I have the biggest problem with in general. It's a little bit harsh, but I, I equate it to fascism. The way that we approach the land is everything has to be on our terms. You know, all the plants that are there have to be there for us and, and so on and so on. So just from the start, you can see it's a radically different way of approaching the land and it really is an indigenous form of agriculture. Initially, I learned from Anishinaabe people here in North America so and in Mexico 
and I kind of pretty much associated it with Turtle Island, with this continent. But, you know, as you do more research and you talk to more people, you start to realize that, again, I'm a little wary to use the word universal because I, I know that that's a word that's been misused and it's kind of a cop-out to say that, oh, this is all the same or all these religions or all this or whatever is the same. So I don't really mean it in that sense, but there is some universal parallel approaches that people take all over the world. And it's pretty obvious when you're on the inside and you're working with the earth, there's no mystery to it. It's all to do with intimately understanding the plants and the cycles and the birds and the animals, and then essentially fitting yourself into that groove, right? If you think of a jazz ensemble or something like that, like they're already full on playing. And then we'll come along with our little peeny instruments. <laughs> I've never made this metaphor before, but, um, you start to see that like we really interrupt an orchestra that's already in the middle of its movements. And so if you've ever kind of entered into a jam that's already rolling, you understand perfectly that you have to start in such a small, subtle way just to hook into the groove and start to feel the movement of things. And then it's like it draws you in. You don't step in. You stand at the edge of it and you sing your sweet little song and you hope that nature will accept it and draw you in. And there's no choice involved. It's not it's not something we have to choose. And then I guess there's a choice to go along with it or to reject it, you know, for your your rational mind or your industrial mind to kick in and then suddenly go, oh, we were floating off a little bit too much there into whatever that other dimension was. And... Uh, Let's all come back because, you know, let's face it, we all spent 12 years in school or 16 years in school learning how to come back to the point. And it has its uses and its purposes, but clearly it's not what life's about. Entering into the flow of things is not something that people understand, you know. And again, maybe if you're a surfer or a jazz musician or something like that, then you get it because it's something you live all the time where there's something bigger that you're riding, much, much bigger, you know, than you. And uh, as you said in the intro, you know, have some humility and take it slow. Your gardening philosophy speaks to that you were a forager before you were a gardener. And similar to traditional agroecological methods of indigenous peoples all over the world, your approach increases the biodiversity of edible and medicinal plants within the natural landscape. And I want to ask, do you think your gardens are supporting the resiliency of native forest in which they are embedded? Well, if you read the book, then I guess you're asking that question about the property at the Madawaska, in which case there's some really interesting and really lovely kind of things I talk about this, I, I think, in the book, where it was kind of unintentional, but it's a long story. But I created a clearing, I introduced about 100 different species, and, and then I watched what happened over the years. And in the early years, 
essentially I'd created a solid buffet for all the animals in the forest because of course in older growth forests like mature hardwoods and stuff there's actually very little to eat and this is true everywhere old growth in the west coast is also true very little to eat in the forest it's really transitional lands where we can forage a lot more so you know i introduced this buffet of all these lovely plants and indeed they were disappearing as high as a rabbit could reach because there was a rabbit hole right in the center of the site that I'd created. And yeah, I guess it was pretty much his site. So uh, I was thinking the second year, I was like, oh, geez, maybe this all has to happen bigger. And then you introduce the predators as well and on and on and on in that kind of way of thinking. But of course, I, I don't jump to things anymore. So I was just rolling this around. Another year or two pass and a fox moves into the rabbit hole and suddenly all the, the predation on the ground stops. Basically, I realized I'd kind of created this, what I call a green bomb. So it, it was like waves that went out into the ecology from the fecundity of this little co-creation. So yeah, I guess to answer your question, for sure it's enhanced the area massively and i i suspect the real estate is quite valuable for the foxes and for well for the bears and for the deer and for the moose and for everyone who frequents it i think uh, it's very valuable another little brief story that's also so lovely is that the moose in that area are heavily stressed by it's not Lyme disease, but it is something that ticks carry, and it kills the moose, but it doesn't kill the deer. So they're under a lot of stress, and you can see it if you run into a moose in the early spring. They look rough. So anyways, what I realized at a certain point is that the moose were all coming and self-medicating in my garden. So they were taking like the wild quinine and uh, echinacea, but in medicinal dosages, like they weren't clearing it out. They were just kind of nibbling at it every day and stuff. And so it was also like a living pharmacopoeia for all the animals, right, in the, in the forest there. So it's quite beautiful if we do something small, but it has integrity, how it, it really does ripple out into everything. I love imagining this pharmacopoeia in the middle of a forest that our non-human relatives frequent for their ales. That's so beautiful. And I was thinking about the rabbit and the fox and the deer and what would happen to these small gardens if they weren't fenced. Because I know where I live that if even an apple tree with no apples isn't fenced, a deer will come and and really eat all the fresh new leaves, which actually it just happened to me a couple of weeks ago. So I'm wondering, how is this garden able to evolve with the browsers and the ungulates and, and all the, the creatures that do eat the green? Yeah, it's a good question. And, and the truth of it is the fruit trees have been devastated <laughs> from the bears and the deer in the area. But I don't know if it's clear from the book, but I, I don't actually live there now. And so the garden, in a sense, have made it as an offering or 
maybe in a less romantic way as an experiment just to see what will happen. I did have gardens, though, there that I protected from the four-legged ones. And again, it's knowing how they think about things, like for deer in particular. Now, again, this might not be possible on, on the scale, your scale, but they absolutely hate horizontal trees. So when a tree's fallen in the forest, and it got all those little branches and everything. They hate that. They just, they see it coming and they make a big circle around it. So when I made my initial gardens in the forest there, I had to clear trees anyways. And so I made this horizontal deterrent. And you know, it worked incredibly well. And there's a few little tricks with deer as well that you can do with little hoops of wire coming out of the ground, about three-foot hoops, and they're in arcs away from your garden. And there's something about, and they overlap, the arcs overlap. So yeah, I don't know if you can picture that, but there's something about deer won't jump distance. They can jump height, but if something's crowding in on their, their forelegs, they always back up, and then they, they just take a pass on it. And again, with all of these things with the wild animals, the big trick is that they don't get a taste in the first place. Because once they actually get into something in your garden, then oh, it's pretty, it's pretty hard to turn that one around, right? And even year to year, they know that, ah, yeah, in the spring, mm, there's those buds that taste just like ripe apples, which if you've ever eaten an apple, but the, the early leaves and the buds do taste like apple. They're actually sweet and really amazing tasting. So you can't blame them. And um, it is their space, right? We always have to remember that it's their space. We're the trespassers here. So it's such an individual call for you, for your space. And I think that's that's the message is that there is no kind of general rules you have to negotiate with those animals in that space. And maybe you plant a tree for them. Maybe you plant something else for them. Even salt licks, lots of other things can act as deterrents for them eating your stuff because you're making an offering to them as opposed to just being an intruder in their space and laying out this delicious food for them. Mm, yeah, I have been co-creating some experiments out here in the temperate rainforest with these biodiversity enhancement test plots, or you could call them forest gardens as well. And thinking about browsers and thinking about just how to share the biodiversity to hopefully spread the biodiversity into other segments of the forest is something that I've been really full in right now. And so hearing your experience and how to share with the wild ones, because they are going to be the ones that are, will really spread the biodiversity, but also not allow them to wipe out the populations at the same time. Trying to balance that is a really, it's definitely something that I'm doing a lot of research on right now. So I appreciate hearing your thoughts. And, you know, something that you had brought up earlier was that the thing about having this living reciprocal relationship with the land, it's not replicable from place to place. What one patch of forest asks of humans 
may be drastically different from what another patch just a few hundred yards is asking. And I'm thinking back to a passage in your book where you tell of a planting of your first forest garden. I'll actually read a bit of what you wrote. Quote, Because the landings were already depleted and had been clear-cut and bulldozed, I felt it might be okay with the forest, or somehow good karma, to garden on these spots, to reclaim and recondition the abused areas. After meditating on a couple of these log storage areas, I clearly received a go-ahead from the land to put my first intensive garden in one of those areas, end quote. And I'm curious, this time the forest said yes, but could you tell us of some times when the forest said no? Even in that example, you know, the one place was a real no. By all visual appearances, it seemed like a good place, but I definitely got a no. It's like when you're harvesting wild plants, the same thing holds true for making gardens. For me, it's the idea that, okay, for this period of time, I'm going to inhabit this space, co-inhabit this space, cohabit, <laughs> cohabitate. But it's with the understanding that I will give it back to, to the owners of the land, to the wild in time for sure and it's the same like when you're picking a wild plant it's like okay this is my turn this is your turn to give me your body and then the time will come for me to give my body to you so i think that's real important is that you have that longer vision and it goes on beyond your life beyond our time and maybe even beyond your people's time to a time when the land will have its way that this is just part of um, this cycle, that it's not forever ours. We're not laying ownership forever claim to it or anything like that. It's a very fluid thing. And I talk about that in the book, that it is how Indigenous people farm the land for arguably, you know, 40,000 years. We've been doing this thing where we could feel the fertility of a spot in a fairly benign way, we would figure out a way to get rid of the trees. So we'd either flood the area or we'd swind in the trees, which is when you take the bark off around them. Because you can't grow crops without sunlight. So there would be a clearing, then it would be used for a certain amount of time. But again, no fertilizers. They didn't keep animals and they didn't use their fertilizer. And later in history, when the plains people did have horses, they would actually garden in the areas where the horses were during the winter, but they'd actually take all the feces out of the garden because they felt it contaminated the garden. So complete opposite to our way of thinking. It was just working with the energy in the land the way it was. And then as soon as that would start to wane, then they'd find another spot. They'd give it back to the wild. And I think, you know, this is... This whole idea, our agricultural, early agricultural humanity was dramatically different from hunters and foragers is just not true because I've lived it. I understand that it's a continuum. It's all part of the same thing. You can garden in a perfectly harmonious way, just like you can hunt in an absolutely terrible way. It actually has very little to do with the action that you're doing it has everything to do with the approach that you're taking and what's behind it.
You said that you added hundreds of pounds of mulch from the forest and a ton of silt from the riverbed to your first forest garden. And I'm wondering, how did you make those decisions? Yeah, well, the silt for the riverbed was really so that I could have water in the summer. I had I had to dig a pond, essentially. And so when the muck came out, rather than just slopping it on the side, I took it in buckets and I walked it up the hill to where the garden was. But it's a good question, you know, and for me, all of those decisions are still incredibly painful and difficult to make. Once I make the decision, you know, I've learned that it's good to execute it with confidence, but making the decision is arduous for me. And deciding to even cut down a tree or we're building a traditional structure here. And so I know that that piece of land is going to be compromised by by what I've put there for hundreds of years, maybe, possibly. So the debt that I feel in the taking is so painful that any of those decisions are just, they're brutal. And a lot of the time it takes me years to come to something because even though I know it has to happen, I wait till whatever the trees completely shading half the garden or something. And then something at some point kind of says, it's okay. And this is one of my teachings too, is that we all have so much shame about our ecological and cultural destruction. I'm generally saying we like white people, but I think we in the first world, we could say, have all done our good fair share, no matter what our skin color is, of consuming and taking and and wrecking unwittingly. So we're all filled with this shame, but then it gets misplaced into things. And so, again, I don't want to offend people, but you become a a vegan or um, animal rights person or something like that without even understanding that there's a way of working with animals that's not only ecologically sound, but that was sanctioned by divinity. All our early relationships with plants and animals came from the gods directly and the goddess directly. So there's nothing profane or or degrading about the very nature of agriculture. And this is my big teaching for people, because I see it clear as a bell. The Western mind, or the dominant mind, (laughs) this developed world mind, is so addicted to creating prescriptive formulas, as if theories and certifications can teach you how to grow food or tend medicine. And as a byproduct, we make compromises and justify the heavy input of external resources, as long as they follow our so-called holistic or organic methodologies. And I think about how we abandon the life underneath our feet when we cover the ground up and dump topsoil from somewhere else on top of it, and then question why there aren't thriving vegetables two months later. And I think about ancient sphagnum bogs that take millions, maybe thousands of years to form, and that they are being dredged of their peat or the kelp, or the lime, or the wood chips. You know, everywhere we are stripping lands of their living fabric to feed our short-sighted visions for productivity. Yet, quote, people need to make Mm -hmm. money. So no one stays 
in one place or has access to land that isn't totally exhausted, and the Earth is overwhelmingly degraded and simply cannot support 7 billion wildcrafters or co-creative polyculturalists for that matter. So, Stephen, I'm wondering, how would you encourage people to use as minimal resources as possible given these difficult circumstances? Well, again, it's 10,000 battles and you can't fight them all. You can only fight the one that's basically on your lap. And so you change what you can, right? We all know plastic is like this huge, huge problem. So try eliminating as much as you can. But somewhere down the line, your food is touching plastic, almost guaranteed, unless you literally grow everything yourself and keep it in crocks and keep it in jars, and which is pretty much what we do here. But, you know, I also have kids and stuff, so we do shop and do some of those regular plastic <laughs> consuming things. But, you know, I, I think I take your first point that the world can't handle a million foragers out there, no way. But I actually would disagree with your second point that it could handle a million co-creative growers because if I think of just what I do on this property and really just on a few acres is really all I'm mostly interacting with and I generate food for many, many families, not just my family, but many, many other people. And I think it's actually as close to an answer as we're going to get, which is, you know, I try to include this in the books, this vision of just a million people doing this co-creative thing, doing this dance with the earth. And each one of those having this, again, this multiplicity of spinoffs, again, just to stretch it out even further, it's not just in this dimension, it's in the soul and the spirit dimension that we've damned ourselves over and over. And there is a redemption there and the redemption is in the moment and how we're acting in the moment and then the earth can grant us back the fecundity and i've seen this happen on my land here and other lands where i've worked that it takes years but that something happens and then as you said that thing that she doesn't give us much anymore she can give us in a second if the energy of place is such that it's ready for it or it's ripe for her, then she steps in and then suddenly you have bushels and bushels of food. And people people do this uh, forage and feast or people from the school who I'm showing around the land here and they're just kind of like, you have endless amounts of food. Like in every direction, wherever you look, there's food, right? And so if we all did that, and again, we consume so little. I remember there was this uh, big interview on CBC, which is the big Canadian radio, public radio. And this woman had gone a year without buying anything new for her baby. And we just laughed our heads off because we thought, I don't think we've ever bought new stuff for our kids. They actually thought the dump was the store for the first seven years of their life. We never buy new stuff. Again, maybe some tools or some things that are going to really last, but I just don't buy plastic. I don't buy junk, you know, never for our kids, not their clothes, not their toys, nothing. Everything's got to at least be secondhand. And so I don't even think it's any kind of big thing the way we live. But 
essentially, if everybody lived the way we lived, holy smokes, there would be so much food and so much fecundity and so little consumption. That's a big claim, and I'm not saying in any way we're perfect, but again, it's the 10,000 battles, and, and maybe we've fought half them or something between Megan and myself, and there's still 5,000 to go, right? But we're working on it. So there's your kind of optimistic answer. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate that. And I wonder what it would be like for a million people to be co-creating forest gardens. And yeah, I oh, think... Oh my God, can you imagine? Yeah. And a lot what of... a different planet it would be. Very different. You know, one thing that comes up for me is just access Perhaps a million people have access to land, but I, I don't actually know the statistics of how possible that is, perhaps definitely more possible in collectives and um, eco-villages or collectively owned spaces or collectively shared spaces. Yeah, it's a really, it's a really beautiful vision. Well, I was just thinking, you know, like, there's so much land, like the whole eastern seaboard, right up from Virginia, right up to Quebec. The whole thing is forests growing back in. A lot of it is privately owned and lots of it is crown land, but it was all cleared. It was all farmland and it was exactly more or less where we have to go, which is there was towns. They were centered by rivers because you had power, you had a mill. And then so that was the center of town and then the farms spread out from it and there was none of these 500 acre or 2,000 or 20,000 acre farms. Everyone had 40 acres of bush and maybe 40 acres of, of fields or pasture, that kind of thing. And it's not like it's some obscure dream. We pretty much had it down a few hundred years ago, but industrialization and other powers that be kind of muddled everything up and so I do kind of feel like I mean imagine if the government actually supported these ideas for example there's millions of people that the government pays for their food pays for their housing pays for everything through welfare every year why not just give some people some land so they can actually grow their food create a living, create community, create cultures. Like again, if the will was there or enough pressure, I guess, these lands were designated in a certain way. But again, the only time it can happen is when enough of us get together from first world rich people to buy the land, to create a collective. And then it turns in very often to this quite isolated that's what happened with the communes up here in my area in the 60s, 70s, and I guess a bit in the 80s. There was at least a dozen or two dozen communes. It was The land was low in price. And everyone was like, cool, we're going back to the land. We're going to create our own thing. But then they just create this little pocket. And, of course, you just brought in all the shit, even though you think you know where it's at. You brought in all the shit with you unconsciously. And in a little pocket, you just start to fester. And so almost none of these communes worked in any kind of functional matter at all. And it's still going on. There's a whole other wave of people trying to recreate the exact same thing. And it's like, no, you need a bigger community. You need a village 
that's the way things work, right? It can't just be five or whatever households. It's got to be like 40 or 80 households, or I'm sure there's a number there, and I'm sure people have studied it. And I don't really know much about it, the truth is, but it just seems to me that it could be done if there was support from from the bureaucratic end of things. And doing it in a private way is, is very difficult, very challenging. And I'm not saying it shouldn't be tried. I've tried it a few times, and I commend people for trying it. But just having a relationship with one other person, I think we've all experienced, is pretty difficult. So when you're in a commune, you're with maybe 16 other people in your little pocket. And it can also be extremely trying the interpersonal stuff, and then you actually never get to the stuff why you created the commune, which was all very practical, and it makes sense on so many levels. But the interpersonal stuff is big. I've heard that from a number of people who have started commune-like situations where their biggest takeaway was the interpersonal relations and the traumas that people bring in and if you're not committed to working through those fissures or perhaps have the skills or even the desire to do that and you know for a number of reasons people don't have the capacity that that's something that they really speak to as being a deterrent for that type of living situation so thanks for sharing a bit about that and I want to talk more about restoration and For the Wild, this collective of soulmates that I get to work with every day, we really have sat with the word restoration, and we actually believe that this term, restoration, is actually outdated, and there's no returning to some ecosystem of the past. You know, the earth is ever-changing, and what early colonizer naturalists wrote in their books about native forests depicts only snapshots of living communities who are always in flux, shaping and being shaped by one another. Not to mention that we have been vectors for rapid species movement and are causing a mass extinction. (laughs) So in this era of climate change, the biological palette is drastically different than it was 500 years ago. There may be no going back, but I cling to the idea that if we quiet our human supremacy significantly enough, we can still tune in and support the resiliency of the earth in these troubled times. So around here, we say renewal or reforestation instead of restoration. And I'm wondering, what do you think about the concept of land restoration and human needs and wants aside, do you genuinely think, or what do you genuinely think is the best thing we can do to create more possibilities for life to evolve autonomously? Well, again, I I think knowing the place in a really intimate and long-term way is essential. So to come blundering in and just go, oh, this thing's happened historically here and and, uh, we think we can correct this by this and this is just, it's almost as foolhardy as the way it got there in the first place. When you know the plants and you know the trees, then again, very specific to the place, specific to each situation and each plant and each animal involved, you have to make the call. And the way I can talk about that is here on the farm in Golden Lake, 
it's not like in where the Madawaska is, which is quite isolated. So there's no invasive species there at all. It's a hardwood forest. But here it's a farm. It's 140, 150 years old. Been really, really abused. So of course, all the the good wood has been taken long ago because they were loggers for 100 years who owned this house. And what's grown back is is a mixture of kind of there is native species, but there's also lots of ones that aren't from here that have come in in a pretty big way, like Manitoba maples is one, for example. I feel like even with the Manitoba maples, well, there's part of me that goes, these are going to take over. I've seen places around Toronto and stuff um, further south of here where it's completely happened. They're wild places, but they're completely invasive species it's all manitoba maple and strangling dog vine and all sorts of other stuff so you have to make the call one tree and one place at a time and for me the females of this species the manitoba maples have these keys so the keys are edible for us again if they're harvested at the right time you can pickle them so they can feed you all year there's endless amounts of them they feed a whole huge range of birds. And then a lot of the wild species on the land here, such as elm, a little bit the tamarack and a little bit the birch, I don't want to say things before it's actually happened, and the pine are all under massive stress. So the native plants, because of the shifting environment, may not actually be here in 200 years, but the Manitoba maple will be. So... Again, it's it's a very complicated and in, requires the intimacy. You have to know how these trees grow. You have to be able to have the foresight and the vision to be able to follow what the land is doing naturally and hopefully work with her. So again, you know, like I cut down the male Manitoba maples because you only need a couple of those around and they are overgrowing all my wild plums and lots of stuff that, the animals and myself like but again it's tree by tree you make those decisions if you make a blanket decision about anything like this it's Dachau it's complete fascism it's like when you go okay all white people or all Jewish people or whatever they have to go like it's like no no you, you never do that with anything you stepped way off the path by that point thanks for bringing up invasives it's a debate that I've heard a lot of different thoughts on invasives are a challenging and contentious subject. Animate beings are demonized and eradicated through chemical warfare, and rarely is there an inquiry into what ecological function they may be filling or remediating, or what human actions actually created the conditions in which they are now thriving in. And I read an article recently called Australasian Californian Forest Exchange, where researchers examine the exchange of Monterey pine, Monterey cypress, and eucalyptus between California, Australia, and New Zealand. And the intermingling of these trees has become naturalized in many places, yet it's still viewed as destructive invasives. You know, they're the subject of environmental policy and intervention tactics, 
ignoring, for instance, that eucalyptus provides a crucial resource for overwintering monarch butterflies and that their introduction is likely a factor in the recent evolution of their migration patterns. So I'm curious to hear more of your thoughts on the concept of invasives and novel ecosystems, which you started to bring up. And what do you think we can learn from invasives, quote unquote, in this time? I am definitely of that school that these things don't just happen. There's a a strong theory linking um, certain plants like teasel and Japanese knotweed that they come in specifically at the times when the, the lime comes into the area, when ticks and lime come in. So just as one example that is completely ungraspable to our rational mind that somehow there's enough intelligence in the earth that we are actually being provided with the very plants we need. Some other really good examples are like plantain and broadleaf plantain and um, dandelions. Dandelion was extremely rare plant before Europeans were here, but it was heavily, heavily used by indigenous people once it arrived. And same with the plantain, the white man's footsteps, as they called it. You know, so there's lots of these plants that literally, as we've come in as this colonial destructive force, beauty is following in our wake from the earth. This healing wake of plants is right on our heels coming in behind us. And so things like dandelion, which there's a multi-billion dollar year industry to get rid of them, are the very, very medicine we need in developed countries because it's liver and it's urinary tract and it's cleaning toxins from our system and it's doing the exact, exact things that our destruction has caused in the earth and then in our bodies, the depletions. And so over and over again, Um, What's seen as invasive species isn't to say that some of them aren't really destructive, but I think, again, our knee-jerk reaction has to be really checked. In my area here, too, there's a plant called purple loosestrife that was a European decorative plant. It is a medicinal plant, like most garden plants were originally all medicinal plants. So it made its way over here, and then it got into the wetlands, and The government spent millions and millions of dollars and millions of human hours pulling this plant from the wetlands. Well, two things happen. It's like the coyotes. There's certain animals and plants that the harder you push on them, the more they breed and the more they actually grow. And so not only were we doing the wrong thing to get rid of them, but our whole theory was that they don't have predation over here. They're going to make the passages in the wetlands hard to get through and blah, blah, blah. Well, the truth is the land is drying up here in North America. They're exactly the right stage plant and the right niche to come in in those environments. Now they stopped pulling it because it actually has natural pathogens, natural predators and stuff that have found it here found it to eat, found it to breed with, and all all those things. So, again, even the ones that were absolutely convinced is bad for the environment, 10, 20 years later, it looks different, and maybe we were wrong. So that's what I think about that, is just the, the knee-jerk reaction really, really 
we have to watch that. And of course, it is a form of racism. It is a form of puritanical thinking to think that, oh, you know, just native things should be here. It's like, well, how do you think they got here? And when do you think that happened? Like, the First Nations people are a perfect example. In my area, over the last 10,000 years, there's been three or four completely different First Nations people. So everything is moving and in flux. And yeah, animals help move things around and we move things around. And there have been mistakes, but there's been also lots of surprises. Zebra mussels in the Great Lakes, right? It's pretty much cleaned the water. These things that were considered a blight, which of course it was a blight to industry because they were blocking the inflow valves and stuff. But anyways, yeah, I could blab on for the rest of your hour about this. So. to those muscles that are cleaning the water and stopping industry at the same time we need more of them yeah. <laughs> and we're getting them you know oh where you are well no i think we're getting them all over the world these ones that make us stop coming up with these industrial solutions for things lyme disease is a perfect example where <laughs> the industry is just baffled right they have no idea what to do with it but herbalists know what to do with it right? People who are connected with the plants and the animals and, and the disease itself understand that it has a place. It's come now for a reason. But again, we like to make things into the other. We like to make things into the dark thing that we're not. And, you know, of course, we're actually projecting, but it takes a lot to figure it out. I want to ask you a question about the moon and there are so many forces incomprehensible to and bigger than us that sculpt the spaces in which we garden. For instance, if you live on the northwest coast of Turtle Island, the forest is not purely terrestrial, but is inseparable from the ocean. And my mind goes to the way that plant growth oscillates with the moon. And I've heard you allude to this plant-moon relationship in other interviews, and I'd love to hear more. 
How have you seen your forest respond to the moon's waxing and waning? Well, you know, all life, we were talking about that orchestra that's uh, that's going on. Well, the moon, the moon is one of the conductors, right? It's calling the shots on everything. So the flowering time, the ripening time, these things are all, all really affected. I, I feel like the trees, because they have a longer scale of life, they're affected by many things in year to year and such, but our annuals in particular and some of the not too long-lived perennials are really, really affected by the moon, where planting seeds, transplanting trees for doing certain things, I would be much more concerned about doing it with the right timing with the moon. It's lovely. I, I was actually just at a little farmer's market yesterday and uh, there was an old couple there and they were saying how they just finished all their planting because in our area, traditionally people planted with the first full moon in June. But this year the timing's odd. We're not going to have a full moon. But in fact, this is the strawberry moon. This is the, the moon you're supposed to be planting on, uh, even though it's in the wrong month, the moon that just passed. Or I don't know when this is going to be here, but the moon in May was actually our June full moon. And they knew it. They weren't just going by the rules of the first full moon. They knew that that would be too late to be planting. There had to be something wrong. And so they counted the moons from the December solstice. And indeed, this was the right moon to be planting on. So I'm always thrilled when the older folks who grew up with this stuff still know it inside out. Like farmers in this area, any that are worth their salt, I'd say, they all plant with the moon. You don't plow your field up on the waxing moon because you're going to have 10 times as many so-called weeds. You don't plant seeds on the waning moon because you're going to have a way lower germination rate and over a much longer period of time. So I think it's in these kind of everyday things for me that I'm dancing with her. And But, you know, there is lots of other ways too, like the flowering all coincides with the full moon and the pollination. So there's lots of kind of subtle ways that I don't even think I'm thinking about anymore. I'm just so enmeshed in this environment that for me, the calendar and all that stuff has no time, has no real relevance. I, I completely go by the moon, the plants, the reptiles, all the other things that are signaling what time it is. And everything is signaling a time to do something, right? So like, for example, the fireflies will be starting very soon here. Now, when they're starting... This is the time for harvesting birch bark. It literally peels itself off the tree. It's an incredible thing, and you just have to hit it at the right time. About two weeks ago, the oak leaves were the size of mouse's ears, and that's when the morels come out, exactly at that point. So everything's so all mixed in that I'm not consciously, except for seeding and plowing and stuff like that, I'm not consciously really thinking about the moon. I'm just watching all my friends here and where they're at with stuff, and then I know when the right time to move is. I love hearing that response from you. Uh, just thinking about the oak leaves and the morels and being able to 
be in relationship with the land so closely that you start to notice the nuances. That's really, for me, when my love blossoms that much more with a place. And um, this has been a really wonderful conversation. And for my last question, I have been really thinking about the apple. And we don't often even know the origins of our food and medicine plants, nor do we reflect on how significantly they've shaped us. Our movement across lands, our bodies, our culture, our stories, our art, nut trees come to mind, or corn, or wheat, even hemp or cannabis. But I've heard that you've been teaching about the apple. So will you share with us what you've learned about how apples have shaped humanity and vice versa? I use the apple as an example, one of the prime examples, just because it is something that is so common and it has these incredibly sacred, profound origins that are completely obscured, that we have no idea actually how the apple came to be. So archaeologists and people who know things have studied such things and they say that it came from Kazakhstan, 4000 BC. The whole thing about that is, at that time, that was the edge of the world. That was an unknown universe. So we don't really have a history of what was going on there at that point. But I think it's pretty clear, and the more you read and the more you come to understand, realize that the people who created the apple were goddess-worshipping agriculturalists. And they had such a deep, intimate relationship with this being that they were able to co-create with the goddess into this incredible form. And you think about apples and how actually strange they are in a way compared to any other like wild food or something like that. And they've been in this form for a good 6,000 years. And what I would say is probably for 10,000 years before that, the origins maybe even before that. It's just this example of the most common thing. And yet we know nothing about it. It's completely filled with mystery. And it's pointing at the deepest mystery, at the foundation of our culture. It's absolutely thrilling and exciting and You don't have to go to other cultures. We also have a sacred culture, but we've lost it. And we just have to look back far enough and feel our way. And it's right there. It's surrounding us. We're sitting on it, in fact. It's it's everything. Our chairs, our tables, all of these things have mystical, sacred origins that have been obscured by our history. So that's a little bit about the apple. Well, thank you, Stephen, so much for being with us and sharing a bit about your life and experiences in the forest. And if there's anything that you'd like to mention that you haven't already, please feel free to do so now. Thank you again for the opportunity. I never know uh, what I'm going to say. So it's always a surprise for me, too. (laughs) And um, part of the reason we do the podcasts is so I don't have to leave the farm too much. And it's to tell people about the school. We have a school here. It's a very limited number of people we can take a year. And 
in a nutshell, I try to turn you on to these bigger realities and you get to work with your hands in a traditional way on the land. And uh, it helps turn people's lives around and give them back integrity and meaning and all the things we're so desperately missing these days. Thank you for listening to For the Wild Podcast. I'm Ayana Young. The music you heard today was The Range of Light Wilderness and Leah Thomas. I'd like to thank our incredible production team, our producer and editor, Andrew Storrs, our research director and writer, Madison Mogolski and Francesca Glassbell, our media director, Molly Lebo, and all the other amazing folks on the For the Wild team. If you haven't signed up for our newsletter, do so on our website at forthewild.world and also rate us on iTunes. It really helps us spread these messages further. All right, thanks so much, and until next week. Through the dark